Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday to all of you, wherever you may live in the world, or should I say in the United States. But nonetheless, it's um, I'm glad to know that it's uh, Friday, and we've got the weekend uh, upon us. You know, it's good to be back on the air again, and um, what I really enjoy doing most is uh, getting prepared for these uh, podcasts, and that also pretty much involves doing the research. You know, it's one thing to share facts about a unique time in history, but if you're going to just present facts, that's one thing. But if you want to tell a good story, a story that's relevant, a story that um, that you are wanting to share with a larger audience, you need to make sure that you not only have the facts correct, but you need to go about presenting your story in the best manner possible in order to win an audience over, not just to win an audience over on the first go-around, but to keep that audience entertained. In other words, keep them riveting for more um, information. And while, yes, uh, history isn't always pleasant, at the same time, the information given to the audience will help them get a better understanding of why the history that's being uh, taught to them shouldn't be forgotten, not just for the present, but for the future. So here we are again discussing Harlow Giles Unger's American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution. And in this uh, podcast segment, we're going to be learning about um, pieces of legislation that Parliament enacts not long after the French and Indian War comes to an end. And we're going to learn um, a great deal of information about um, the Hancock family from Massachusetts. Uh, After all, uh, we have learned some uh, stuff from previous podcasts about Thomas Hancock, who was a uh, well-to-do, prominent uh, Bostonian merchant. And we're also going to learn about uh, Prime Minister George Grenville. Maybe I'm I might have given some of that away already because, you know, here in the United States, we have a president. In England, uh, we have a prime minister, uh, but then again, there are other uh, nations around the world that uh, refer to their um, commander-in-chiefs as prime minister. So our lead-off question for this uh, podcast episode is the following. Were the British, from a militaristic viewpoint or rather I should say from a militaristic standpoint, were they immune from further conflicts with Indians along the western frontiers in the aftermath of defeating France? You know, it's easy to think that after you've defeated the enemy that that normalcy will return even along um, the frontier territory where everything will just be a smooth sailing. Well, That's wishful thinking. Uh, The answer is no. And there are a couple of reasons for this. For starters, there were a large number of English colonists that did move westward. Um, It's fair to say that many of them were pushing to move westward even before the Seven Years' War ends. But not long after the conflict ceases, do large numbers of English colonists move westward? Is this a good thing? I mean, after all, Parliament did promise um, a fair number of um, 
English people or English colonists that, hey, you support us, we win the war, we can see to it that you'll be allowed to move westward past the Appalachian Mountains. Well, on one hand, that may not seem like a bad thing if you can make a promise of that magnitude. However, it's one thing for large numbers of uh, English colonists going westward, but who does it jeopardize? How about the Indians? Indians living along the frontier. And there are fair number of Indians living along the uh, frontier. We're not just talking about Indians as individuals, tribes, most notably. And we'll find out a little bit more about um, a particular um, Indian chief and what he does to uh, curb the um, westward uh, movement. In other words, to uh, prevent further uh, westward movement by the English colonists. So yes, this um, westward movement by those English colonists who have already done it has jeopardized existing Indian tribal lands. But secondly, uh, the colonial westward movement led Western Indian tribes to unite under uh, an Indian chief uh, by the name of Pontiac, who was a, the uh, chief of the Ottawa nation. Under Pontiac's leadership, large-scale attacks took place, and it wasn't against uh, the English colonists who came westward, folks. These attacks actually involved um, Indians uh, under the leadership of um, under the leadership of um, Pontiac, the, who was the Ottawa chief, in the destruction of seven out of nine British forts west of Niagara. Did you hear that, folks? Seven out of nine British forts were destroyed. Well, Britain's got their uh, work cut out for them if they want to um, maintain uh, the peace. You know, it's one thing to have now all of a sudden this empire. This empire has expanded now because the French have ceded all the territory, especially what we know is Ohio. They have been forced to cede uh, territory along the Great Lakes, most notably um, in western New York, around um, what we know as Erie, Pennsylvania, um, even uh, what we know as uh, present-day Detroit, Michigan, because Lake Erie does um, border, or Lake Erie uh, touches uh, Detroit, Michigan. So the British Empire has now expanded greatly as a result of, of defeating the French. However, the Indians aren't going to lose their territory, but at the same time, the British have to do everything there is in their power to ensure that the Indians don't lose their territory. So what is one thing that Parliament does in 1763 in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War that will ultimately um, prevent further uh, westward um, migrations along into the frontier from uh, colonists, from English colonists living along, um, living in the 13 colonies. Well, Parliament passes the Proclamation Act, which prohibits all further Western settlement west of the Appalachian Mountains. So anybody wanting to go to present-day Ohio is now going to be forbidden. And who's going to be protected? The Indians, not the colonists. So not long after all hostilities had ended did British officers realize 
that colonial militiamen were ineffective in defending frontier settlers against Indian raids. Now it's come to uh, now it's come to light for the um, for these British officers. You know, yes, you know, our subjects might say that they that they can do the job in um, defending the frontier against um, Indian raids, but how effective are militiamen? You know, we haven't fully declared our separation from England at this moment, but I'm gonna what I'm gonna say next does have relevance. There was a prominent Virginian who went on to become commander of the Continental Army by the time um, we decide that there's no other course to go. And just before 1776, a fellow by the name of George Washington who gets, um, who gets approval, who will get approval from Congress to become commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, um, he didn't have the highest regards for the militia. How is that? Not trying to get off subject here, folks, but let's just think about this going forward. The militia in George Washington's eyes are undisciplined men. They come and go as they please. It's To them, it's an I, me, myself job. I, I show up when I want to show up. I'll leave when I want to leave. I'm not interested in being committed in terms of a year. I'm more interested in fulfilling the equivalent of 90 days, and I'll be satisfied. So here we uh, let's revert back to the present, meaning the uh, post-French and Indian War uh, time frame. The British, um, the British officers now realized that the only viable solution was to maintain a standing army. A standing army that would be present at all times that could better regulate settlements or territory along the frontier. In other words, the presence of a standing army could would more than likely reduce all further tensions and conflicts involving uh, people going westward and encroaching on existing Indian territories. Whereas if you put a group of militiamen out there trying to defend these territories, who's not to say that the militiamen will either aid or abet Indian tribes, or let alone aid and abet uh, settlers who are, doing, um, who are engaging in matters that, in the eyes of the crown, are illegal. So basically, a standing army in the eyes of the British government is far more relevant than relying upon colonial militiamen whom are more interested in, in having an I, me, myself mentality, whereas a standing army is more about us, we, ourselves. Well, let's get into some money, um, get into what we call money um, factors here. How deep in debt was England after the Seven Years' War ended? And we have to remember at this time, folks, that we're not talking dollars. We're talking about pounds. Does anybody want to take a guess exactly how deep in debt England truly was after the Seven Years' War ended? She was 145 million pounds in debt. 1,150,000 of those pounds went to the 13 colonies to cover the war costs. So is it fair to say that even the colonies have some debt? Yes. But does their debt pale in comparison to 
how much debt the mother country has. Absolutely. Whereas colonial merchants' fortunes rose rapidly by smuggling goods to the French, and remember, I think it's fair to say that this uh, Seven Years' War would have ended a lot sooner had colonial merchants not um, dragged it out by smuggling goods to the enemy and profiting off of it even in a time of war if it meant doing so illegally. But whereas colonial merchants' fortunes rose rapidly by smuggling goods to the French, Parliament imposed an influx, an influx meaning a large... Uh, a wide swath of taxes on her own people within England, where scores of people landed in debtors' prisons to organizing anti-tax riots. So is it fair to say that, you know, I think it's fair to say for the longest time the textbooks probably wanted to convey the, wanted to convey their own story by saying that the only people who were impacted by these um, egregious um, measures involving improper um, taxation were just the colonists in um, colonial America. But it turns out that even Parliament's own people, meaning the subjects well below King George III, that is everyday commoners, are deeply impacted by the taxes that have been imposed because they don't have a say in their own government, and two, they are the victims of um, what we call of not having their voices be heard. So, yes, a majority of uh, England's own people are in debtors' prisons because they can't pay debts off. But then again, debtors' prisons are nothing new even for colonial America. Okay, so um, who's uh, George Grenville? I know I mentioned him earlier, but he is a native of England, and he came from a well-to-do family. Uh, come April 1763, he becomes Britain's prime minister. Okay, does is George Grenville uh, one of those uh, firm believers in, um, in everybody um, and everyone needing to pay their fair share of taxes? In other words, is George Grenville one of those people who, who believes that only one sector of society should pay the bulk of the taxes while the other society, while the other sector of society pays, you know, diddly squat, you know, a minimal amount. George Grenville believes that, believes, firmly believes that the colonies, being um, the 13 colonies in colonial America, need to pay their fair share on taxes, in large part because of safety defenses, you know, who's going to, who's going to look after them along the frontier to prevent, um, Indian, um, attacks. They're going to have to rely on the British. At least that's what George Grenville is thinking that the subjects are going to have to rely on the standing army to do the job because he knows in his heart that colonial militiamen cannot, cannot achieve this mission. So, Yes, for Prime Minister Grenville, he believes that um, that the colonies need to pay their fair share t on taxes with regards to safety defenses, in large part considering that the French and Indian War saw <laughs> 10,000 regulars, folks, guard the western frontiers. 10,000, folks. That's a huge sacrifice right there. So if you have had 10,000 regulars guarding or protecting various 
outposts along the western frontier, yeah, you you better see to it that uh, that your subjects below make some sacrifices on their end to see to it that this standing army can stay afloat, not just short term but long term uh, going forward. Now that we are in the um, post Seven Years War era. And then, uh, besides uh, this army of uh, regular uh, guardsmen, you've got a navy to think about, too, that's been constantly patrolling the coastal waters on the Atlantic Ocean. So, the mother country has been sticking her neck out for her subjects, and yet her subjects <laughs> are complaining about stuff that, to most of us, would seem trivial, irrelevant. I think it's fair to say that even the textbooks from years past forgot to include all that. So Prime Minister Grenville, he simply wants the colonies to help out England, considering how many sacrifices the mother country made in protecting her subjects by land and water throughout the Seven Years' War. So in the eyes of George Grenville, he's, it's, you know, he would like to say to the colonists, look, we did our part to help you all. Now you all can do something back in return for us. Maybe he's trying to tell the colonists not to burn bridges. What was the first of Prime Minister Grenville's tax proposals? Okay, um, tax proposals. What was the first? You know, we there again, the textbooks always told us about that uh, Stamp Act. And we're going to talk about that here shortly. But that's the one tax that we had learned the most about in the textbooks. And yes, it is important, but even the textbooks didn't uh, mention other um, legislation that came before the Stamp Act. The, the textbooks didn't mention anything about that 1733 Molasses Act either. But Parliament, I mean, but the, the textbooks also didn't mention how Parliament enacted on April 5th, 1764, the Sugar, or what became known as the American Revenue Act. What did this act uh, seek to do? Well, this legislation alone sought to do what the 1733 Molasses Act could not achieve. What, was, what could um, customs officials not achieve in uh, 1733 with the Molasses Act? They couldn't collect taxes from the colonists in America. So, whereas, this, whereas the Molasses Act had gone from uh, six pence per gallon of molasses, Parliament was probably kind enough to reduce the rate in half by going to three pence per gallon of molasses under the um, Sugar and American Revenue Act. But even with that reduction, is it fair enough to say, folks, that, that the colonists weren't um, abiding by the um, new legislation or weren't taking kind to it? No, they weren't. Were the colonies in an economic state of slump following the Seven Years' War coming to an end? Yes, they were. The colonial economy during the French and Indian War had centered on providing essential provisions to the British Army. What would have been essential provisions? Well, shoes, um, tents, salted pork, salted beef, um, anything that probably would have um, 
perhaps pertain to like manufacturing and maybe textile as well. Uh, you know, like with blankets, you know, soldiers need blankets to keep warm. You know, um, just to name a few things. So, yes, it's fair to say that um, that the colonial economy during the Seven Years' War was based upon um, it was based upon um, producing goods that uh, were needed in times of war. But in time, but as we are now making our way into the post Seven Years' War era, are those jobs still available? No. In other words. They were really only temporary jobs that perhaps were going to benefit um, England more so than the uh, colonists. So, come 1764, the Sugar Act included parliaments attaching indirect taxes, being taxes that got imposed upon goods and services prior to arriving at the final destination. The customers received a lot of the burdens for the for this um, under this legislation. In other words, when the goods arrived to the customer, and we're not talking about goods being like delivered to their home, the goods would have come to you know a port. So the goods, once they arrived, they didn't perhaps have the same worth that they would that the goods themselves would get paid upon once they had arrived versus when they had left the origin points from overseas so one thing you a customer could have done was they could have just avoided pay avoided purchasing the commodity altogether but at the same time if they bought this good the problem is that it's really it's an un an example of unfair and proper consent. In other words, that the colonists never really got a true say on what, on how the the um, taxes were to be rightfully imposed upon once uh, arriving r arriving into uh, American ports. I know it's a little complicated, but um, but this, but it's also good for me to be able to share this with you all so that you all kind of get a better understanding of what eventually happens when that infamous Stamp Act gets passed um, down the road. But New England's ports did bear the greater brunts incurred from the Sugar Act, which led to the inability in getting smuggled molasses over safely. So... It's fair to say now that New England's ports are feeling the uh, heat behind what Parliament is doing now. But to make matters worse, uh, Prime Minister George Grenville has given has received broad powers from Parliament to enforce not just the Sugar and American Revenue Act as a piece of legislation by itself, but he's also been given broad powers to reform the Customs Service to strengthening inspection procedures that would prohibit ship owners and merchants from suing customs service men for illegal search and seizure, illegal search and seizures. Well, remember what uh, James Otis Jr. Um, vehemently protested? James Otis Jr. was firmly against customs officials showing up on a person's property or most notably a vessel, 
to inspect the vessel, but doing so without any sufficient probable cause. In other words, yes, a customs officer can come up and say, well, I need to search this uh, vessel. Do you have any um, proof that what I have inside my vessel is illegal? Is it, you know, do you have proof that it's illegal contraband? <laughs> if you don't have proof of it, then why are you here? So for Prime Minister George Grenville, he's doing everything he can to keep the colonists from not having a say over whether or not they think it's appropriate for um, customs officials to come onto, um, onto a merchant ship, or a merchant's ships for that matter, and, um, and, and engage in the practices that in the eyes of Parliament and the Prime Minister are okay, but in the eyes of the colonists are not. Is it here fair to say here again that um, improper consent was um, that unfair consent was um, was at play here? Yes, it was. Would Parliament pass additional legislation in 1764 impacting the current state of colonial money? Yes. Parliament enacted in 1764 the Currency Act, which prevented all 13 colonies from using currency not linked to paper money. So they could print all the paper money they would like to, but the paper money can only go so far. Why, how so? Because Parliament is going to force the colonists into relying upon bartering for day-to-day -day business transactions. Paper money will be prohibited from making payments on all debts, public and private. So basically, this puts people in a it puts a lot of people in a bad situation. Everyday people, as they will be pretty much be forced to be stuck in a rock in a hard place. You know, they could use paper money for something one day on a particular day, but tomorrow the paper money might be might not have any value. And it's not just having no value, but the paper money will be denied and and that someone above can say, sorry, I'm not I can't accept your paper money because um, for for whatever reason they say. So the Currency Act basically is a means of deterring um, the colonists from doing what they want to do. And maybe in the eyes of Parliament, uh, prohibiting um what do you call it? Uh, in the eyes of Parliament, they are trying to perhaps crack down on um, what we would think of maybe today as counterfeit money. In other words, Parliament doesn't want the colonies making their own rules anymore. They don't even want the colonies governing the, the state legislatures from each colony. Parliament doesn't want them to have any kind of freedoms. The currency acts... Because there were two currency acts. There was one passed in 1751, but the currency acts led to further tension between England and the colonies. And 1764 saw James Otis Jr. write a pamphlet. You know, when I think of pamphlets during this time um, of the American Revolution, the one that always comes to my mind is Thomas Paine's infamous uh, pamphlet titled Common Sense. These are the times that try men's souls. Well, well before 1776, James Otis Jr. writes a pamphlet that gains um, 
that gains uh, what we might think of as national attention, called the rights of the British colonies asserted and proved. And in this pamphlet, it led to a unique first, being an outcry against the following. Taxation without representation. Isn't that the phrase that um, came about after Parliament had passed that infamous Stamp Act? Yes. But before 1765, someone else um, introduced that phrase of taxation without representation, and we have uh, Mr. James Otis Jr. of Barnstable, Massachusetts to thank. Now moving on to the Stamp Act, and I'm sure all of you are familiar with the Stamp Act. Of course, we're all when we think of the Stamp Act, we all think of taxation without representation. And we do know that um, that uh, when Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, that one of the grievances listed was the following: He has taxed us without our consent, meaning he was referring to King George the Third. But well before 1776. Parliament enacts in 1765 the stamp tax, or what's called the Stamp Act. The legislation itself became the third measure where Parliament had passed measures or laws without the colonists, without the colonists' direct consent. The other two um, measures that uh, Parliament had passed previously were the Molasses Act from 1733 and the American Revenue Act, of 1764. So I think it's fair to say that we have all learned a great deal by now that 1765 was not the first year where Parliament had passed legislation that was um, considered to be a first where um, improper consent had not been given. So we can now say that 1733 was the first the first time where Parliament had enacted legislation without uh, seeking direct consent from her subjects below. Now, one of the primary purposes behind uh, the Stamp Act um, legislation was to help cover costs for the British military troops stationed in the colonies following the Seven Years' War. Okay? So is it fair to say now that most of you are learning something here that's uh, unique and new? Is it fair to say that all of these le pieces of legislation are geared towards raising revenue for a treasury that is drained? Yes. The, seven, um, the Stamp Act was unique in that it marked the first time where a direct tax got imposed upon the colonists. What are direct taxes? They are taxes placed upon a person or a property where the taxes are paid by the same person. These are non-transactional affairs. Indirect taxes are non-transactional. But a direct tax is placed upon an individual, say upon an individual's property, where the taxes have to be paid by the individual who lives on the property. Think about folks like a real estate tax. You know, that's property that's tangible. So the Stamp Act required most printed materials 
from colonies get placed on stamped paper from London. The printed materials ranged from legal documents, magazines, playing cards, newspapers, printed material, and the printed material was to be paid in Brit British currency versus colonial paper money. Well, I tell you, Parliament is really sticking it to the colonists. And I think it's fair to say that the colonists are getting fed up. They're getting fed up because, all because, in large part, because no one is going, no one's going up to bat for them. In other words, the colonists didn't have. The colonists are claiming that they don't, they didn't have a rightful voice on this. In other words, they didn't, they weren't given the right to send people three thousand miles across the ocean to. Um, to speak on their behalf to say to um, the greater institution of parliament that, hey, this legislation is unfair. It's irrelevant. How can you expect nearly, say, maybe roughly two million people living in colonial America at this time, uh, about two, four million people, how can you expect those people to agree to something that they have no say, that they don't have a say over, considering that they are 3,000 miles uh, across the ocean. So, yes, think about this, folks. So, everything that's uh, of printed material matter, being a legal document, magazine, playing cards, newspapers, all of that stuff has to get, um, all that has to go through um, stamped, the, um, the printed materials have to get placed on stamp paper before they can be become um, official documents. Okay, uh, moving on here. Um, let's get into some more numbers here with regards to the Stamp Act. Taxes under the Stamp Act raised around £300,000 a year in England. That's pretty impressive. Prime Minister Grenville estimated around £60,000 a year in colonial America would be generated on top of £45,000 from the Revenue Act. If you do the numbers here, folks, the stamp tax figures to come out around £105,000 yearly, meaning that roughly one-third of all costs would cover maintaining a British Army's presence along the frontier territory. So all of this money that Parliament's trying to generate, folks, it's to, um, in their eyes, it's to ensure that, number one, their empire stays afloat, but two, to also ensure that her subjects are protected from further hostilities. There's a reason why the British Army is manning posts left and right along the frontier to prevent further hostilities between the Indians and the colonists. Because if, <laughs> if the British Army isn't there, who's going to take over? Parliament already knows that the colonial militiamen are not cut out for this job. And they may have a good point in that. But were many colonists in strong opposition to paying taxes towards the needs of British troops? Yes. 
considering whether or not it was essential behind needing a standing army present and manning and maintaining military posts during times of non-war, a.k.a. times of peace, post-Seven Years' War. So, you know, it's one thing to have a standing army present in a time of war, but what about after war? That's when you have to ask yourself, should our money go, should our money continue to go funding to go towards further funding for this um, for this uh, standing army. Is it worth it in a time in, in a non um, time frame of war? Well, that's even a question that our forefathers would have to um, continue to, to debate upon even in the years after the Constitution was signed, and especially after the American Revolution ends. Of course, we can't go down that road um, now, but the question over whether or not a standing army is present or is essential or not is going to be one of those questions that will never go away 100%. So yes, m many of the colonists were in strong opposition to paying taxes towards the needs of British troops. That's why many of them did propose sending their own militiamen to protect the boundaries, but uh, Parliament was smart enough to say, uh-uh, nice try, but we need professionals. Amateurs aren't going to cut the job. So the Sugar, or what's known as the American Revenue Act, Currency Act, and the Stamp Acts, what were they all geared towards? Parliament's objectives behind raising necessary money. In other words, raising necessary money to generate as much of a surplus as there possibly could be, considering just how deep England was in debt following the... Um, the Seven Years' War end. Now, all these um, acts were, they may have had good intentions in the eyes of Parliament, but it came at a price. It came at a price that resulted in provoking further tensions among her subjects, being the 13 colonies. Well, is it fair to say that even in today's time, and it probably was fair to say even in the post-French uh, post and Indian War era, that you can't please everybody? There are some people who are fine with it, but not everyone else. I think it's fair to say that there were probably plenty of people who supported the Sugar and American Revenue Act. They probably supported the Currency Act. And is it fair to say that there probably were people who did support the Stamp Act? Believe it or not, folks, there were, and I'm sure those who supported the Stamp Act probably got tarred and feathered. And is it fair to say that maybe those who supported the Stamp Act that got tarred and feathered were loyalists? That is, those who um, wanted to remain loyal to the crown even after um, having defeated the French? Perhaps so. Okay, now we're going to move on to um, learning about... Um, about a uh, family in Massachusetts. It's not the Adams family, but we will learn more about Samuel and his cousin John somewhere down the road. John Hancock. Okay, well, we all know who John Hancock is, right? Yes, we do. You know, he, of course, when we think of John Hancock, we think of that large signature on the Declaration of Independence. Of course, we haven't gotten to that part just yet, but you know, when I think of John Hancock, I think of, you know, his signature being the largest. 
And one thing I do know, um, and I have to remind myself of this, is that if had uh, Edmund Randolph of Virginia not died in 1775, whose signature would have been the largest on the Declaration of Independence? Mr. Edmund Randolph's. So, which prominent Massachusetts forefather was born in 1737? John Hancock III. He is the nephew of prominent Bostonian merchant Thomas Hancock. And it should be interesting to point out that Thomas Hancock, by the time John is born, Thomas, is nep Thomas Hancock himself is, and he's right around his mid-30s. As a matter of fact, Thomas Hancock was born in 1703. That makes him three years older than America's oldest forefather, being Mr. Benjamin Franklin. John Hancock III's father and Thomas Hancock were brothers. So there's the connection right there. What happens in 1744 that, um, that alters uh, young John Hancock III's life? His father died. Is his mother still alive? Yes, she is. Does John Hancock have siblings? Yes, he does. However, Thomas lives nearby, and Thomas Hancock wanted to play a part in the lives of his nieces and nephews, and he um, wanted to relieve um, Mary Hancock's um, duties or I should say rather pressures that she had given that she's a widow. Mary was John Hancock's mother. So Thomas Hancock, through Mary's consent, agreed to help raise young John Hancock. Did Thomas Hancock and his wife have any children of their own? No. So it could be fair to say that Thomas Hancock sees John and his siblings as like the children that he never had. Thomas Hancock lived right around uh, Beacon Hill in a home considered by many to be grand. Just how grand, folks? How about a three-story palace? If you live in a three-story palace, you're living the high life. From the get-go, young John Hancock was well looked after with regards to high-end grooming and dressing to getting formally introduced to military and government leaders along with the royal governor, whom was a frequent visitor to Thomas's fine palace estate. Young John received, an outstand, received outstanding education services. He went to Boston's Latin School. If uh, his uncle is well-to-do and can live in a, three, in a grand three-story palace, it's fair to say that he can provide his nephew with all kinds of um, he can provide him with all kinds of connections. That's one thing, but he can also provide him a top quality education, which would also involve getting private tutors. Most people can't afford a private tutor for their children. Is that am I correct? Yes. Who can afford a private tutor for their children? Those with money. Those on the higher end of society. Even the uh, Virginia um, aristocrats, uh, most notably of the Tidewater elite, like the Randolphs, uh, the Byrds, uh, the, the Custises, uh, the Carters, 
they were able to um, afford uh, private tutors for their children's for their children. How many years um, did it take Thomas Hancock to amass the fortunes he attained as a merchant? Well, I'll put it to you this way. Thomas Hancock didn't um, play one of those scratch lotto tickets and um, and say and, and come away having won, you know, $10 million like via Powerball. No, that, that wasn't it, folks. So obviously it's going to take time to amass a fortune. But how many years did it take Thomas Hancock to amass the fortunes he attained as a merchant? I'll give you some choices. Choice A, was it 10 years? Choice B, was it 15? Or choice C, 27? The answer is choice C, folks, 27 years. That is a long time to attain a, um, mass fortunes. But he does it with hard work. Nobody handed him anything. So it's easy to get this assumption that when people uh, were considered wealthy in colonial days, we just have this assumption that they were um, sitting around doing nothing, having, you know, mint juleps and having, you know, parties left and right, and it is probably fair to say that, yes, the wealthy, or what we call the gentry, did have parties. They did entertain their, their fair share of people, but at the same time, their fortunes um, just don't happen overnight. Now, after graduating from Harvard, do you hear that, folks? John Hancock went to Harvard. John Hancock goes right to work, where under his uncle's tutelage, he starts learning all aspects of merchant of the merchant banking profession with the goal of rising to full partnership with his uncle Thomas. So the goal for John Hancock now is to attain partnership status, and that's not going to happen overnight, but he's going to work his way up the ladder. After the British debacle at Monongahela, where did Thomas Hancock stand with regards to French forces in America overall? He firmly supported the policies that favored expelling the French from American lands altogether. I want to uh, share with you all um, something that happened during the French and Indian War that, that was tragic. But yet, it involves Thomas Hancock because um, Thomas Hancock um, had a change in heart. But I will tell you this, it didn't have anything to do with changing loyalties, but it just had a change in heart towards um, how people were treated. So here we, let's listen to the story here. The Bay of Fundai, located in Nova Scotia, was home to 6,000 French-speaking Roman Catholic Acadians. Roman Catholic, folks. If you are a Roman Catholic living in colonial America, can you hold office? No. Can you, um, can you uh, practice law? No. Are your opportunities severely limited as a Roman Catholic? Yes. What colony um, becomes one of the first colonies to uh, be a haven for uh, Catholic refugees in America? Maryland. 
For those of you who were with me when we discussed signing their lives away to signing their rights away, about, you know, about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence as well as the Constitution, especially for in signing their lives away, we learned that one of the 56 signers was Roman Catholic, and it just so happened that he was the last signer to die uh, from the Declaration of Independence um, generation. That was Mr. Charles Carroll. I mentioned his name briefly because the Carroll family was the largest um, land-owning family in colonial America, and yet they were Catholic, and yet their opportunities were limited. So what did, where did the Carroll children go for schooling? Well, they had two choices. They, they got, tu they got um, tutoring, that is private tutoring, and some of the Carroll children or relatives went overseas to France to get their education, so this way they could avoid being persecuted. So just because you are of one religious sect, folks, in colonial America, doesn't mean that you are um, automatically guaranteed the right to worship freely. Remember in Virginia? Okay, um, what church do you have to adhere to in Virginia? The Anglican Church. If you are not a member of the Anglican Church, where do your taxes still go? to the Church of England. So, yes, it's one thing to be a Protestant sect, but just because you are a Protestant sect, it doesn't mean that you have the same uh, religious freedoms as another, uh, as a person of a different Protestant faith sect. So, in other words, in Virginia, if you are a Baptist, and Baptists were the biggest uh, group of dissenters in Virginia, they were largely, they were widely persecuted for their religious beliefs, but they didn't have the same rights to worship freely as those who adhered to the Church of England. So anyways, uh, at the Bay of Fundai, located in Nova Scotia, this was home to 6,000 French-speaking Roman Catholic Acadians. They were viewed by the British as rebels. British leaders gave them an ultimatum. They could either go into exile or they could take allegiance to the crown. If they took allegiance to the crown, they would still have their property. Uh, they could still live where they were currently residing. If they chose exile, the opposite would happen, and that's what happened. British um, forces plundered their homes and villages, that is, the homes and villages belonging to, the, uh, to these nearly 6,000 French-speaking Roman Catholic Acadians. Now, Thomas and John Hancock at first support the actions that took place. However, between 1757 and 1758, Thomas Hancock's philosophy, that is, attitude towards the French Acadians, changed. How so? Well, at some point he saw firsthand up close refugees suffering terribly in prison. They were suffering terrible uh, injustices in prison while awaiting return southward to North Carolina. Thomas Hancock requested that these prisoner refugees be freed as soon as possible so that they would prevent, so that they would have to um, be spared from further suffering. His request got approved by the Massachusetts Governor's Council, being uh, the upper house. You know, this is a nice little gesture of compassion on his part. Why should people have to suffer any more than what they've already suffered? You know, they've already seen their homes and their villages plundered, their whole livelihood's gone. Why languish in jail 
It doesn't mean that, you know, releasing these prisoners may not change anything that happened already. But the hope now is that these prisoners can can go back to their native uh, land southward and perhaps start a new life without um, having to be reminded. Of course, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Yes. But you know what? I, I give Thomas Hancock some credit here for at least um, realizing that there were some injustices. It doesn't erase what happened before, but it, but he did go about modifying something now to prevent further injustices from taking place involving uh, French prisoners. Thomas Hancock has a very uh, rapid uh, resume, to say the least. In 1758, he became the official financier in America for British military operations. Between 1754 and 1760, Thomas Hancock earned roughly 5% of the costs behind conducting the Seven Years' War. So it's fair to fair to say that Thomas Hancock has been profiting very uh, handsomely, to say the least. 1763, the same year that the French and Indian War ends, John Hancock earns the title of business, part of, uh, business partner firm. Well, or rather, he earns the title of business partner. The firm that uh, Thomas Hancock operated now, is, now has become Thomas Hancock and Nephew. A good family partnership right there. However, uh, for all the success that uh, Thomas Hancock had achieved, especially in terms of uh, helping his nephew um, make a name for himself, Thomas Hancock's life sadly uh, came to an end on August 1st, 1764, at the age of 61. He died from a stroke. 61 today is young, but back then that was probably considered old age, considering most people didn't, you know, even come close to probably making it to 40, depending on where you live. But sadly, he died from a stroke. This now makes 27, his 27-year-old nephew, John Hancock, Boston's new merchant king, to becoming one of America's richest men. You know, it's one thing to inherit a fortune... And yes, it can mean inheriting a fortune when, when your uh, relative passes away. But do you think John Hancock feels 100% ready? Well, I would say that he probably feels as 100% ready as he's going to be able to be. But the bigger question is that, okay, now that he's inherited this fortune, how does he keep it going in the right direction, even as colonial America is undergoing an economic downslump. After all, John Hancock's ascension now to um, becoming Boston's new merchant king, as well as one of America's richest men, will say a lot about the future in terms of where America goes, as where colonial America goes uh, going forward with her overall relationship with the crown. This could be seen for better or for worse. After all, we still are in a marriage with the crown, but it's going to be one of those marriages that's truly love and hate. It's going to see even more fluctuations happen. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time. And when I'm on the air again next, one of the things we will discuss is um, 
is we'll discuss more about John Hancock, and we'll also discuss um, what other leaders think about the Stamp Act. After all, the Stamp Act isn't just impacting uh, people in Massachusetts. It's also having a negative effect as far south as Virginia. Thank you again for listening as always. I look forward to being back on the air again soon with all of you. Uh, Wherever you all are, uh, stay safe and have a great upcoming weekend. Take care.